0: tortoise
1: hello i'm giles whittell tortoise's deputy editor it's the week beginning monday the 29th of january from tortoise welcome to the news meeting
0: Cautionary words from President Biden, who says the U.S. shall respond after Iranian-backed militants killed three American service personnel, all stationed in Jordan.
2: Disposable vapes are set to be banned across the U.K. because of concern they're fueling an increase in illegal vaping among under-18s.
3: Henry Staunton's time as chairman of the post office is now up, forced out in the fallout from the Horizon IT scandal.
4: Explicit fake images of Taylor Swift on making the rounds on social media, which got, wait for it, 45 million views before it was taken down.
1: I'm joined today by my tortoise colleagues, Kat Neelan and Stephen Armstrong. Hello. Hello. And I'm also joined by Dr. Brian Klass, Associate Professor in Global Politics at University College London. Hello, Brian. Hello. Now, Brian, we're going to talk separately about your new book, Fluke chance, chaos, and why everything we do matters. And listeners will be able to hear that in a bonus episode this Wednesday. My nerd takeaway from the book is policymakers need to embrace the random. My more human takeaway is we all do. But my big question, so you know it's coming, is if the world is uncontrollable in the kind of way that you set out, is that good or bad for democracy? Let's get back to the show, as it were. Let's start with your long stories short. So in a single sentence or just a few words, what do you want to talk about? Kat, you go first.
3: Mine is a painful kind of justice.
5: All right. We'll hear more about that. Uh, Brian. The mass delusions of the political right in the United States.
1: (laughs) That uh, could
2: be a big one. And Stephen. Two drunks scared to fight after the pub while the crowd cheer on. It's about Iran and America. All right.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Stephen, thankfully you're going to go first, but before we hear you pitch for your story, I'm going to play you a voice note from a listener that should make you very happy. He said your pitch on behalf of the British Armed Forces last week should have won.
6: Hello, news team. This is David from Mulgai here. Giles, I thought you got the call on Friday's episode wrong. Putin will not be stopped by hand-wringing and will continue to try and build his Russian empire. That will lead to war. War is more likely if Trump is nominated as the Republican candidate. The military will be ignored until the current conservative government stops its internal destruction. The UK's population will be most protected by increased military spending and most inconvenienced by the war that will inevitably come if it is not. This will only become apparent more slowly than less relevant headline-grabbing stories focused solely on today. An interesting podcast. Thank you all. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Yes. A big vote of um, confidence in your story from last week, Stephen.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the the, the underlying parts of the story was that we are already at a position where it's almost, well, we are in a terrible position because we've not done anything for the last 25 years. So whatever we say and do now, uh, it's all a bit stable door horse, um, if only the metaphor didn't include a rampaging military force attacking the stables at the same time.
1: Yeah. Okay, Stephen, let's move on to your pitch for today, which is actually about the
2: American deaths in Jordan. So there is a U.S. base in Jordan, which right. is a, a strong uh, American ally, incidentally the, the, the country that sort of oversees Jerusalem as a kind of independent arbiter. Um, and an Iranian-backed proxy called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq, which is a kind of a collection of groups in Iraq, launched a drone and missile attack on a, on a U.S. base called Tower 22, which was, it's, it's a relatively small base. It's, um, and in that attack, they killed three American service personnel and injured many more and it, we know it's the islamic resistance of Iran. they have too, claimed their claimed. responsibility okay. yes but they didn't initially no, no but they no. have recently okay. and the uh, now there have been there's been an ongoing series of attacks against u.s bases in the area since october the 7th again something that we don't really see there's this this constant warfare going on there this is the first one that's produced deaths and this of course in an election year is something that the u.s president can't just say well so there, the the Americans are going to have to launch a response. And I think with with Democratic presidents, the stats on uh, U.S. strikes in the Middle East is probably more unsuccessful than it is successful. But there have been um, uh, a couple of notable Democratic president strikes. So I think Biden will inevitably have to do something. The Republicans are pushing him to. There's an election coming. What I think is also interesting about this is that Iran is denying that it was backing the islamic resistance in iraq and issuing that order and i think that to a degree that's probably true if you look at pentagon um, information about the orders that iran is issuing to its proxies it's tending to say that iran is not issuing these orders that's what's happened now is that the proxies are forming their own decisions they form their own alliances hezbollah is probably more influential than iran in determining what these proxies do and iran like many empires before, like from the Romans through to the Americans in Afghanistan, is starting to find out that if you build a defensive and offensive war on proxies, it's very, very easy to lose control of them. So the, the guy who set up the the proxy policy, this um, Qasim Soleimani, was assassinated uh, in 2020. And since then, Iran's grip on its proxy forces has become increasingly tenuous. At home, the Iranian regime has to cope with a faltering economy and a younger population that doesn't really have the interested in fighting for uh, the revolution. They, I mean, in fact, they're fighting against the revolution. Young people are tending to post TikTok videos of them dancing mm. without headscarves. There's a very, very febrile atmosphere in Iran. So it's there's almost a three-front conflict that the Iranian military are having to deal with.
1: Brian, what do you make of
2: this idea,
1: Stephen's idea, that this is not a, a case of proxies acting on Iranian orders, but uh, proxy acting beyond Iranian control?
5: Well, I think it will be irrelevant in how it plays out in the U.S. Irrelevant. Yeah. I I think the U.S. response, especially in the Republican Party, will be that this is a provocation by Iran, whether the technical details confirm that or not, and there will be significant pressure on the White House to respond militarily. I think Biden will be very careful about escalating beyond what he thinks he can control and I think this is what we've seen with the Houthis as well, where there's sort of a an attempt to show strength and, and, and military force, but without ensnaring the United States in a war that they can't, uh, you know, control heading into November.
1: I know it's hard to speak for 330 million Americans, but yes, you've had uh, Biden trying to give himself some wiggle room, saying he will respond at a time and in a manner of our choosing. So seeking some time there and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, warning about the risks of escalation. How will a broadly cautious um, response, if that is how it pans out, play with the American public at large? You've got Senator Tom Cotton from the Republicans demanding an immediate devastating military uh, retaliation on Iranian
5: targets everywhere. Well, this is the interesting thing about the Republican Party now is that the base is mostly isolationist and the elites that are from the old guard of the party are not they're very much hawkish and so there's a a, a sort of paradox here because a lot of people wanted the U.S. out of the Middle East I mean the America first mentality is explicitly about bringing money home so the risks of in you know getting embroiled in a conflict in the Middle East now uh, in, in a much more aggressive and and consequential way, is one that may be uh, playing well with the sort of senators in, in Washington. But a lot of people in sort of, you know, Midwestern America, for example, want nothing to do with this. They, right. they, they want to ensure that service members are protected and that people pay for killing American troops. But they don't want to go back to the days of Iraq and Afghanistan dominating American foreign policy. So I think that sort of uh, reticence will probably be something that the Republican Party has to navigate as they put pressure on Joe Biden.
1: Cat is there a possible UK angle to this? I mean, of course, British Armed Forces have been involved in a in a small way, in a supportive role in the attacks on the Houthis. If 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 that's about to escalate we'll British Armed Forces be a part of it? Will this government want to be a part of it?
3: Actually it's interesting kind of hearing Brian talk about how it plays in America and, and we've seen there was a poll fairly recently that showed it's not just Republicans, it's it's Democrats as well, or albeit to a lesser extent that, that kind of want to, to pull out from that. I actually think um, it's slightly different, it plays slightly differently with with British voters um Conservative core voters we saw in the leadership contest in 2022 uh, in their sort of rush to out Margaret Thatcher each other that this kind of um, sense of, of, of uh, the Iron Woman and of course Liz Truss had had uh, done the, uh, the, the the ride in the tank yeah. emulating Margaret Thatcher Falkland's era so I think perhaps it it probably d- plays slightly better here that, that sort of historic sense of the British Empire ironically however we are less well placed than America to actually be able to put our money where our mouth is
1: absolutely let's move on to your pitch Tell us about your story.
3: Yes, uncharacteristically, I am going uh, not for UK politics, but for uh, a story in the US which um, caught my attention. So on Thursday last week, the 25th of January, at 25 past eight in the evening, the first person in the world... Uh, was executed using nitrogen hypoxia. Um, this is a man called Kenneth Smith. He'd been on death row for about 30-ish years. He was, in the words of Sonia Sotomayor, a guinea pig. He's the first person to have been killed using this method. Now, Sonia
1: Sotomayor of the US Supreme Court.
0: Indeed. Right. Um,
3: now, the reasons that this method is being used are are sort of various Um, one is that increasingly pharmaceutical companies don't want to be associated with the lethal injection another is restrictions being imposed by the EU on exporting uh, uh, lethal uh, chemicals Um, a third is uh, there have been Um, several sort of bungled attempts to execute people using other um, methods I hadn't until I was researching this story um, quite sort of computed the fact that of course medical professionals aren't involved in the process because they have to take the Hippocratic oath so they cannot actually be involved in killing someone so the people that are doing it are not medically trained and Kenneth Smith this man who was killed he was uh, he was convicted of having murdered uh, a preacher's wife in 1989 um, uh, in a killing for hire he was paid around a thousand dollars to do it um, and has been on death row ever since then. In 2022 they tried to kill him through lethal injection and uh, spent four hours was effectively trying to find a way to inject him, um, and couldn't. And he was sort of left, uh, according to reports, with PTSD and very, very anxious. Understandably, they, after they that failed to find,
1: a, find a vein, right?
3: They failed to find a vein. Yeah, apparently they, they were even sort of, you know, trying to inject um, bones. That it was so, it was so bad, um, and so understandably, he was very um, anxious ahead of this, uh, and. The, the 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 argument has been that it is a safe and humane way to kill someone in fact it seems to have taken over 20 minutes ve- sort of reports vary 22 to 25 this is the minutes long. um yeah and um there were journalists Uh, allowed to watch it who if you can bear with me one reporter told the BBC I've been to four previous executions and I've never seen a condemned inmate thrash in the way that Kenneth Smith reacted to the nitrogen gas he just began to gasp for air repeatedly and the execution took about 25 minutes his spiritual advisor um, a man called Reverend Jeff Hood who has uh, been present at uh, a number of other executions said I think I think anybody that witnessed this knows that we didn't see someone go unconscious in two or three seconds. What we saw was minutes of someone struggling for their life. We also saw cracks in correction officials in the room who were visibly surprised at how bad this thing went. There have also been then condemnations Mm -hmm. from the UN from the EU and even the White House saying it is very troubling that Joe Biden has deep concerns with the, the death penalty in principle and whether it's consistent with our values. So I suspect this might open up a whole wider debate about whether this is really the country that America wants to be. And I appreciate that, you know, with a, with a presidential elections, it will perhaps be weaponised um, but it does seem to be and, and I appreciate that I say this as someone who is British and therefore has a particular sort of view on this that you know, if you've got the world sort of saying, we don't want to be associated with this, uh, we don't think this is a humane thing to be doing. Um, is it perhaps time for America to kind of reconsider whether the death penalty is suitable at all, rather than continuing to try and find ways around the sort of restrictions that are being imposed in order to, to prevent it?
1: Compelling stuff. Okay, Brian, uh, as once again, the representative of your great country. (laughs) Uh, Two questions. The first is unfair. You're not a news professional, but I'd be interested in your take on this as a news story. But secondly, isn't the broader context over the last 20 years or so uh, gradual but steady reduction in the number of states that are routinely executing people? And we have a, a federal moratorium as well at the moment. So put it in context if you can.
5: Yeah. So most states don't use the death penalty. Um, a small number are responsible for almost all of the executions. And uh, historically, you know, there's there, there were a lot of people on death row in California, for example. But now that has been uh, that has been changed by the Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom. So most executions happen in Texas. Um, they're responsible for the overwhelming majority of executions. And, you know, I think the, the thing is that there is a huge divide in this politically where this is an uncontroversial topic in Republican politics, almost all Republicans are in favor of the death penalty, and it's an uncontroversial policy in Democratic politics, where almost all Democrats are opposed to the death penalty. There are some exceptions, but it's a it's a very big partisan split. I, you know, I think the thing is that when I look at this question, there there's a debate to be had philosophically about the role of punishment in a humane society and so on. The the, the way it ends for me, where I'm personally opposed to the death penalty. Mm-hmm is that there is huge amounts of evidence of racial disparities, in conv- not only in convictions, but also in uh, sentences. So that if a black man kills someone who is white, they are far more likely to get the death penalty than the reverse. And also there is a huge bias in terms of the prosecution based on elected district attorneys who are often playing politics with this mm. and in election years might be more prone to seeking the death penalty for crimes they otherwise wouldn't. So the implementation aspects of this combined with the fact that there is – there are several examples of people who are exonerated uh, with later DNA evidence that's the end of the debate for me because Mm -hmm. you know that there are people who are getting killed who are not guilty and you know we have exonerations in the UK for example and we can you can't undo the time they spent but they're not dead Mm -hmm. and this is the thing where you know to me that's that's the end of the debate now of course in, in Republican politics it's a very different story and the sort of biblical eye for an eye mentality here is one that that does play a big role in partisan rhetoric but you know, I think this is something where there has been an evolution in this a little bit, um, which is to say that there have been some restrictions on on these aspects. But, you know, I mean, most people who are killed are still killed with lethal injection. Um, if you are found guilty at the time when a, a, a different method of execution is on the books, you can elect to have that done. Um, so there have been recent executions involving firing squads uh, about 14 years ago. And um, I think the most recent hanging was in the 1990s. So there's uh, there's different methods that they use. Um, the, the the Constitution bans cruel and unusual punishment, and what's described with this hypoxia to me, I mean, it sounds both cruel and unusual.
1: And you talk about the end of the debate for you. I mean, uh, Kat, um, your point, I think, Kat, is that the the this is such a macabre spectacle that it might be the end of the debate for a whole. Another category of, of, of voter. Do you think, do you think the, the sort of I don't think we have seen images of this, but um, hearing of a mask being stuck over the face of the, of the condemned person and this 22-minute death struggle, will that change the minds?
5: I hate to be jaded on this, but I think this will play no role in American politics. I think it will play no significant role in any debate. Uh, I think that this is not an issue that the White House wants to take on. I think it's uncontroversial in both parties, their views on it. And I don't think there's a lot of hate to be made politically from uh, engaging in this. So it's one of those stories that's sort of, you know, just uh, just a tragedy of, uh, you know, internationally views, viewed as a, a tragedy and so on. But in, in domestic politics, I think this will be a blip.
3: A bit like gun control. Yes.
2: I, I, without being American, clearly, I, I do think it's probably more interesting than that. I don't know if it's as um, hard and fast. I think the, the beautiful thing about the complexity that is America is that one of the great sort of political science views of america is that roe versus wade was this moment in american political history where you started to see what was a very complex set of beliefs you could be a democrat and be you know pro gun and it was a country where senators could could cross the the floor very easily it was a very very mixed up kind of it wasn't as, as ideologically clear that roe versus wade was the beginning of this full division like you were one thing and asking people's views on one topic gave you all of their views on all topics But I think you've seen a couple of big issues, things like gay marriage and, interestingly now, abortion, that start to show cracks in the facade of what we perceive that division to be. Mm -hmm. And I think, so the opinion polls on the death penalty in America, it's still the case that broadly speaking, Americans are pro-death penalty. But but support was 80% in 1994. It was 56% in 2020. And in December last year, there was a perception, the first time the majority of Americans thought that the death penalty was applied unfairly. So I think that what what it seems to me that happens in America is that everybody assumes everyone believes everything and then suddenly overnight you look and think, wow, actually, no, America is fine with pro-choice. Oh, wait a minute, everyone's fine with, with gay marriage. And it feels like this could be one of those things that flips before anyone's noticed.
3: Just on that, I saw a really interesting interview with someone talking about the importance of language and I'm sure, Brian, you, you probably have some thoughts on this as well, about if you flip pro-choice to freedom, then you get, a sudden change and Republicans are suddenly very much on board on freedom. Uh, so suddenly um, that that kind of shifts the gear on abortion. And I wonder whether that might be something that could be played here. I was listening to a very interesting interview with the Reverend who was um, going to be in the room with Kenneth Smith just before the execution took place. And he's obviously a Christian and, a, and, a, and has strongly held Views on on his faith, and was saying that this he can't believe that this is a Christian uh, way of dealing with this problem. So I wonder whether perhaps the sort of apparent uh, lack of humanity and lack of well, the, the the very clear pain that this man went through when he was dying might give uh, a sort of uh, a sort of cause for Christians to to come out against.
5: Uh, I wish that were so, but the evangelical <laughs> movement is the most pro-death penalty group in the United States. <laughs> so, um, thinking. yeah, and and I think the the cultural salience of issues in the United States, I think, is proportionate to how much they affect people's either identity or their life experience, which is where abortion comes in, and also things like gay marriage, where people meet someone who's gay, and so on. Very few Americans have met someone who's on death row, mm-hmm. and so the, the 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 salience of that politically, I think, is much much lower than those other issues.
1: Kat, mm-hmm. thank you for pitching that story let's take a break and then we'll hear more from Brian
0: a lot can happen in 3 years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly 3 years in some states learn more at uh1.com as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b
1: Brian is there any amount of money
5: that will silence Donald Trump well this is the this is the story I'd like to pitch is the uh, 83 million dollars that was uh, allocated in damages to Eugene Carroll um, if you if you don't recall that name she is the person who alleged that Donald Trump uh, sexually assaulted her in the 1990s in a department store on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan and uh, in a in a proceeding in a court of law the Judgment was that he did indeed do this, and he was found liable for uh, for rape, according to the judge. So this is where the um, the, the damages have then stemmed from this, because uh, he continued to insult her and uh, and basically say that she was lying. And the jury over the last week basically awarded this massive amount of money, um, based. Amusingly, on Trump's own statements of how rich he is, right? So they they basically used the fact that he boasted about how much money he has, which he may or may not have, as a justification to award such a large amount. Now, the the, the offshoot of this, which I think is the important bit, uh, is that this will not hurt his standing in the Republican Party and will probably solidify his grip on the Republican nomination, which he's going to sail to. Um, Nikki Haley, who is his only opponent left, had her best possible showing, I think, in New Hampshire, which is the state that is tailor-made for her to do well in, and she still lost. I, I think this is going to be a runaway contest after this. And I think the the, the story really is the, the mass delusions that exist now in one of the two main political parties in the most powerful country in the world. And when I say that, I mean, you know th- there's sort of two hypotheses for why the scandals don't violate, you know, Trump's popularity in any way. One of them is that these are just bad people, right? And, and I think this is a simplification to say, oh, the reason why people don't care about the fact that he committed sexual assault is because they're just awful, amoral people, right? I think the more persuasive way of looking at this is that they live in a fantasy world in which none of these allegations are true, not just the sexual assault, but the 91 felony charges. They're all trumped up. They're all things that are produced by Trump's enemies. And when you look at the polling data, I think it really bears this out. I mean, 70 percent of Republican voters believe that Donald Trump won the last election. Uh, More than half of Republican voters say that they believe at least one of the core tenets of QAnon, which is a a completely insane conspiracy theory that involves Democratic uh, involvement in satanic conspiracies to traffic children for sexual gratification. And more than half of Republican voters also say they believe in at least one of the core tenets of the racist Great Replacement Theory, Mm -hmm. which holds that basically elites, especially in the Democratic Party, are trying to bring in immigrants to replace white people so that they can vote for Democrats, right? So, you know, this information pipeline that exists in the ecosystem of U.S. politics is the story, I think. I think it's the biggest story in American politics and one that we're going to be grappling with for decades.
1: Okay. Um, I'm sold on the sort of long-run salience of that delusion, but the polling also indicates, does it not, that there is a significant slice of the electorate in the middle who might, who, who have said they might switch their vote if Trump were Convicted in any of the four criminal cases that he faces, this is not strictly speaking a conviction, but it is an an award against him. Um, isn't that politically significant?
5: Yeah. So you, you're you're absolutely right, and I I am. Uh, of the view that this will probably hurt him in the general election uh, because i think the general election is going to come down to the middle 4 or 5% in a handful of swing states and those people who are not trump disciples look at this and think this is bad right so th- i think in the general election this does play a role i think the issue though is that you know you take a step back from this i mean where are we as a country if a person who has been found liable for rape in a civil proceeding with a judge overseeing this and then is awarded damages for defaming that woman by a jury of his peers doesn't suffer politically. I mean, that is a really bleak statement. But can is I, it can I
3: play devil's advocate just on this? Because um, my concern is that the, the, the scale of polarization in America is so extreme now um, that a decision like this actually kind of further inflames that and further drives people apart. And because, unlike in the UK, your courts are political as well, that it may actually end up shifting people who were undecided that in the favour of Trump because they will believe the narrative that it is a witch hunt. Do you think that that's a credible... Concern. Yeah, I mean, but
5: this is but this is the issue that I think. That, so let's take let's take the Eugene Carroll case aside because this is one where obviously the court found, you know, that the jury found what it did. But the other four court cases, I mean, this is not a it's not a witch hunt. I mean, we, there is a massive amount of evidence of criminality. I mean, we have for the one for the documents case, for example, which is about Trump illegally taking documents, classified documents from the White House. We have pictures of them being stored in a bathroom and on a stage. I mean, on a stage, it's like, you couldn't write this fictionally, right? By the way, my favorite, I think, defense of Trump in all of the time was someone saying, well, it was in a bathroom. Don't you know the bathrooms lock? It's like, (laughs) yes, but from the inside, (laughs) right? So unless somebody was in there with the documents, it was not locked, So Anyway, the, the, the point is here, I think that there is, you know, there are Trump-appointed judges who are overseeing some of these cases, and the Republicans don't care about that. So I take your point about the politicization of the rule of law. I mean, I talk about this with my students, actually, and I say to them, you know, British students, and I say, can you name a single British judge? Now, can you name an American judge? And it's very weird that they can name multiple American judges, but not one in the UK, and it's a sign of how our courts are polarized. Briefly, guys, this is the part of the show where you have to say which story you would make
1: uh, top of the bulletin. Uh, You cannot pick your own. So let's... Kat, let's start with you. why you start with me? Uh, we can go to Steve first if you want.
3: <laughs> yeah, go, st- go to uh, okay, Steve. Steve,
1: you cannot choose Stephen. the deaths of three American servicemen in service personnel in uh, the Middle East. It's a question of the execution from nitrogen hypoxia or the Eugene Carroll Donald Trump case.
2: I think I'm going to. Ch- cheat this a little bit. I think that the E. Jean Carroll case is in the longer term over the course of this year, the story that we will see the effects of and visit a lot. But I think today, the execution is the story that I would lead with. I think we're going to keep coming back um, to what Brian is talking about up until November and beyond. But I think this, it, this execution potentially opens up a debate that may not change anything, but I think it's an interesting moment. Cat.
3: Um, I'm going to go with Stephen's pitch because I think that in terms of the electoral impact, people have already decided what, as you say, they're either for Trump or against Trump. And I'm not sure how much that is going to change things. I mean, it's not obviously much more extreme than, you know, grab a pussy gate, but it's the same kind of Uh, sort of it's the thin end of that wedge Um, and I do think that what's happening in the Middle East is one of those things where politicians are not in control of it and it could very quickly spiral into something that uh, is very serious indeed and have much more wide-reaching ramifications in terms of the election I don't think we're there yet but I think it's the sort of rumblings of stuff
1: thanks Kat Uh,
5: Brian uh, I'll, I'll pick Stevens as well, um, just because I think that this is going to define foreign policy for the next, I mean, a very long time. I think the the, the Middle East is going to continue to reshape not just global politics, but also the American election. Okay. Uh, here's what I think. On the execution in
1: Alabama, I have to confess that in a past life, I covered two the two recent Idaho uh, executions by Firing Squad, and I felt slightly sheepish, I was not a witness in the room, the closest we were allowed to come was across the freeway in a police basketball court where we were told what the last meal was, what the last words were, and we were then allowed to interview the witnesses. And what was really striking about it was that most of the journalists in the basketball court were British. Hmm. It was a strange, must-cover, macabre story which we knew would be avidly read uh, as, in a slightly ghoulish way, um but overall the, the 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 US coverage confirmed what Brian has been saying about the fact that this will probably not move move the needle but i think i think uh, more, more broadly long term the miscarriages of justice uh, and the innocence project in in illinois and and uh, moratoria across many states are, are a positive development in terms of justice but i'm not going to put execution at the top of the list
3: um, are you going to run it? Does it get spiked completely?
1: <laughs> In my bulletins, they all... No, no, we don't spike. We don't spike. It's, 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 Very it's, kind. The, it's the bliss of digital news. There's space for everything. and, and <laughs> This is an extremely compelling story. I grant you that. I grant you that. But um, we are forced to choose between several extremely compelling ones. And for that reason, I'm not going with the E. Jean Carroll case either. Brian, consummate academic, but you actually... Again, you you made the point that you didn't think this was going to uh, uh, diminish the size of Trump's base, radically affect the arguments for for or against. I agree that in in the long term, big picture, the anatomy of delusional politics is uh, important for us to get our heads round. Not just in the states, in Russia as well. I'm very struck that uh, perhaps 120 out of 140 million Russians. Uh, actually believe that the special military operation is in defense against a a threat that we on the outside know doesn't exist against their their country. Uh, Instead, um, at the top of the news, I am putting the deaths of the American service personnel in Jordan for the two very obvious reasons that it threatens an escalation of the conflict uh, in which Hitherto, since October the 7th, escalation has been the shoe that hasn't dropped. And also the uh, response of the Biden administration is being so closely watched by his opponents and those who are anxious above all to ensure that Biden is a one-term president. So for that reason, Steve, yes, yes, you win. (laughs) That's it for this episode of the News Meeting. Brian, I know you're going to stick around so we can talk a little bit more about your new book, Fluke. You'll be able to hear that conversation in a bonus episode of the News Meeting on Wednesday. Cat and Stephen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry not everyone can win. Um, If you think there's a story we missed that should be leading the news, then you can email us on newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. James Harding will be back in the editor's chair on Friday when he'll be joined by David Miliband, former Foreign Secretary and President of the International Rescue Committee. In the meantime, check out Tortoise's new
4: podcast series. Here's my colleague, Jeevan Vassagar, to tell you more. For the last few months, I've been working on a podcast about social housing in the UK, supported by Lloyd's Banking Group. Making Sense of Social Housing is a three-part series looking at what happened to our housing sector and especially what's happened to the bit of it that's meant to provide homes for people on the lowest incomes. This series finds out what went wrong talks about how to fix the crisis and investigates how solving the problem could transform society. Throughout the series, we spoke to people on the front line, from those on waiting lists to those building homes, as well as those campaigning to make a difference. You can hear some of them in the trailer now. Britain is in the grip of a housing crisis touches virtually everyone. House prices and rents are increasingly unaffordable for most people. For those on lower incomes, Britain used to have a lot of social housing, either provided by councils or housing associations. Much of that's been sold off and hasn't been replaced. The safety net seems to have gone from underneath us.
3: There was a particular family that I that was coming to the church and they were having trouble with their house and I was invited into their house
4: and I was really shocked by the conditions in which they were living. From Tortoise, a new podcast series, Making Sense of Social Housing, supported by Lloyd's Banking Group. There was quite literally water running down the walls. Not building enough houses, that's crucial to this story. And there's a bigger picture, a series of political decisions that have created a deeply divided society. Well, I would say the fundamental issue is we don't have enough homes. We don't have enough homes in social housing. We don't have enough homes to rent. We don't have enough homes that people can buy. And so the competition for homes is really significant. How do we get into this mess? How has the housing crisis reshaped Britain? And how can we fix it for everyone?
2: When we look at what we think will help Britain prosper, we think, Helping build safe and secure homes for the UK for the next decades is one of the most important needs in the UK at this moment in time. Kids that don't have a secure and safe home, 25% of them get no GCSEs. That number for the rest of the country who do have a home is about 10%. So we think it's a really important part of building the foundation for a healthy and vibrant economy.
4: Making sense of social housing. Coming soon to Tortoise. The first episodes of the series are available now. Follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. If you like the sound of making sense of social housing, follow Making Sense of Social Housing wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Tortoise.
1: Hello, I'm Giles Witell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster, Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book.